Today's reading is Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known upon earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God has blessed us. May God continue to bless us. Let all of the ends of the earth revere him. Let us pray. Lord God, I pray that the words that come from my mouth might be inspired by my relationship with you and the Holy Spirit working in and through me. That what might be left is clearly of you and nothing of me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was a little bit worried about preaching um, this morning. If you have noticed over the last few weeks, we've been preaching on the Psalms, uh, but headlines uh, this uh, week uh, have just revealed uh, that Psalms have been trademarked. Um, Kim and Kanye have named their latest child Psalm West, but fortunately they didn't include a number as their middle name, so I can still preach on the Psalms. If there was a Psalm West, unfortunately, I probably would have to pay royalties for today's message. When um, I was in theological college, which seems like a very long time ago now, um, all of the students were placed on a chapel roster. If you've had anything to do with churches over the years, you will know the undeniable truth that without rosters, churches don't exist. Some might say it's without the gospel. But in some churches, it's more about the rosters than the gospel. Um, fortunately, hopefully, in our church, we prioritise Jesus. Uh, but rosters are, are very important. Um, but the roster that we had to um, be on for chapel services involved us taking our turns in organising the chapel services for the whole week. So we're on for a week, and then, depending on how many students we had, is and there weren't many, we are on again in a few weeks' uh, time. One of the things uh, that the person responsible for uh, the services through the week had to do was to organise and prepare the intercessions, which are the prayers that we pray, like in our service today, uh, for the world, for the church and people in need. Praying intercessions is a really important ministry in the life of the church because you are interceding on behalf of others. It doesn't mean that individual prayers aren't valid, but you're naming prayers on behalf of others. And throughout the day, we'd have either three or four different types of services. So throughout um, the workday week, Monday through to Friday, there were 17 different times that I had to find words to lead people in prayer, which is a lot if you want to give it the proper attention 
that it deserves. The problem was that I rarely gave it the proper attention that it deserved. And I, sure, I'd, like, I'd sit down and I'd write out properly the prayers for the services that I thought were the most important. Um, but for the rest of the 16 services um, that I, I, I had to organise, I found some handy shortcuts. I love shortcuts. I must admit, if you gave me the proper way to do and a shortcut, I would take the shortcut every time. Um, but here are the, 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 the three top shortcuts that I used to implement um, on my chapel roster week. By the time I got to college, I was quite comfortable praying in public. And part of, I, I think, getting the students to, to do the intercessions was to give them a confidence to pray in public. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm confident already. I can do it. So I would pray what we call extemporaneously, which is a, a fancy word to saying praying whatever is on your heart and mind at the time. The best thing about this shortcut is no preparation. The second shortcut that I used to use um, was a shortcut that a number of other students used to use from time to time, and that was just to give space for holy silence. Now, the way that you make sure it's holy is the way you lead into it. So the preamble about how we need to prepare ourselves and how we need to, to forget about all the worries and just focus on God, and that makes it extra holy. And some students really did love that, that sort of that really peaceful opportunity uh, just to be with themselves and God. Me, I just used to run through all the things I needed to do that day. And after I'd finished my laundry list, I'd say, God, you're going to be with me, aren't you? Thanks. Amen. The good thing about... Shortcut number two, no preparation. But my favourite shortcut, and the reason it was my favourite, was because I thought it was efficient. And being an accountant by training, efficiency is important. And so I um, developed a, a habit or a method of praying through the psalm that was set down for that day. So what I'd do is I'd read a verse or two, and then after I'd read a verse or two, I would use the words that the psalmist would have written to inspire an ad-libbed prayer. And in the psalms, not all the verses are easy. There's actually some quite difficult images and themes in the psalms, but you could just skip through those and get to an easier verse. And then you could pray something about something that you actually felt like you uh, could pray something meaningful about. The best thing about that short, shortcut was, not only was there no preparation, but it was efficient. It was almost like liturgical efficiency, and that made me very happy. I realised, though, that not everybody shared my thoughts on liturgical efficiency. One morning when one of the students approached me and said, Stuart, can I ask you a serious question? Have you prepared the intercessions for today properly? Or are you going to lazily pray through the Psalms like you always do? Well, despite her criticism, it's actually a method of prayer that I still use a lot today. I mentioned my super efficient get out of preparation 
um, prayer method today because of a feature of Psalm 67 that appears twice in this psalm and in 38 of the other psalms in a total of 71 times throughout all of the psalms. And that is the notation, Selah. I'm not sure if you've come across that word. If you're watching the screen um, as Cassie was reading uh, the psalm for us this morning, it actually came up um, in brackets. And that's where you would normally see that um, in, in our Bibles and our prayer books. Selah, depending on which theological college or who was uh, teaching you the right way to pronounce Hebrew words. It might be selah, or there's probably 15 different ways to pronounce it. In this psalm, Psalm 67, it appears after the end of verse 1, and again after the end of verse 4. And the reason why I mention that is that I found when I was employing my super-efficient no-preparation prayer method that when I had a psalm that had Selah in it, that was the perfect time for me to stop and do an ad-lib prayer. The first thing, though, that you need to know about Selah is that we actually don't know much at all about Selah, to be certain. Because the meaning in its usage has, has actually been lost over time. But there are many people who are prepared to have a stab at what it actually means. Some people think that Selah, from a musical perspective, so the Psalms in in many churches today are still sung or chanted. Um, Certainly in Jewish synagogues, uh, they can be sung and chanted. Um, And we believe in, in, um, in the writer's time of the Psalms, it was quite common for them to be Um, to be sung. There's often mention of the use of musical instruments in the Psalms. So Selah could be a musical interlude, a time when the singing of the people might have paused for a moment and the instruments played by themselves. It could have been a time to change the accompaniment. But it's interesting that um, you don't just get the notations of Selah in the psalm. Sometimes you get an introduction to the psalm. And often where there's a Selah in a psalm, there's a beginning a narration, and, and, and it appears in Psalm 67 that says, to the chief musician. So the Selah and the instruction to the chief musician often coincide I like to think to myself with this interpretation that because David was a musician and and is credited for writing a lot of the psalms and because he played the harp that this might have been the the signal for a a little wicked harp solo going nuts on the harp but but maybe that's just me and I'm a guitarist and that's why I like that idea. Other people think of it more from a liturgical perspective, a call and response that it might have been a time when the people had a pause or that they were to respond in a particular way. Other people see it more from a literary perspective. It could have been time for a new paragraph, a transition in thought 
or a way of reframing the psalm. In modern synagogues today, some rabbis still use the Selah to repeat a part of the psalm or to change the tone when people are chanting the psalm. Selah could mean to lift up the volume of, of your voice. It could mean something like striking the cymbals. Selah could be a physical instruction to either bend or bow in reverence. Selah might mean to hang something on a scale of measurement, which might sound a bit obscure, um, but some people think that that was a context that the word selah was used when you're weighing something. And in terms of the Psalms, what they think that that could mean is that when you got to a selah in a psalm, it's when you measured the weight or the worth of the words in the psalm. Selah might simply mean changing the voice or repeating from the beginning. Whether or not one of those meanings was the original meaning of Selah or it's a combination of a number of those meanings or none of the above, one of the things that we know for certain is that Selah mattered. It's repeated 71 times throughout the Psalms. And if it mattered then, I think it can matter now. Simply, Selah encourages us to pray together. Eugene Peterson, uh, the pastor who translated uh, the message uh, version of the Bible, puts it simply this way. Selah directed people who were together in prayer to do something or other together. Now, I'm sure we all know how powerful prayer can be when you're praying by yourself quietly at home or in a time of reflection, maybe when you're driving your car or, or, or in that, that space where you feel closest with God. But prayer equally can be profound and powerful when you're praying together in community. Selah encourages us to stop and reflect in some way. When you reach a sailor, you could pause for a few moments and reflect silently about the words that you've just heard. I mean, we live in a world that demands so much of our energy, our attention and our focus. Isn't it great to have an opportunity where you can strip all that away? And it can be an amazing, welcomed interruption to our frenzied world. The great church reformer, Martin Luther, instructs his people, Selah is telling us to pause and reflect diligently on the words of the psalm, for they require a calm and tranquil soul who is able to grasp with understanding what the Holy Ghost is presenting to his thought. Selah can encourage us to rest. The great uh, preacher of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, was commenting on a passage of Psalm 46 
though the, its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. It's one of those passages in the psalm which, which talks about stuff going on that's big and scary. But amidst the chaos, Charles Spurgeon writes, and, and for those of us who are preachers, this is a bit of a masterclass in, in how to preach. These are his words. In the midst of such a hurly-burly, the music may well come to a pause, both to give the singers breath and ourselves time for meditation. We are in no hurry, but can sit us down and wait while earth dissolves and mountains rock and oceans roar. Ours is not the headlong rashness which passes for courage. We can calmly confront the danger and meditate upon terror, dwelling on its separate items and united forces. The pause is not an exclamation of dismay, but merely a rest in music. We do not suspend our song in alarm, but tune our harps again with deliberation amidst the tumult of the storm. It were well if all of us could say, Selah, under tempestuous trials. But alas, too often we speak in our haste, lay our trembling hands bewildered among the strings, strike the lyre with a rude crash, and mar the melody of our life song. Profound words. Selah invites us to rest and to reflect, to receive and rejoice in the goodness, the beauty, the truth of the God we meet in the Psalms. And Psalm 67 makes some bold declarations about this God. Three clear declarations and two Selah pauses. Firstly, that God has mercy and God blesses. Secondly, that God gives God's people presence, the presence of God. And thirdly, this is done so that the earth may understand God's ways and all nations know God's salvation. And therefore, all people will praise God. Each one of these declarations can and should be a reason for us to say la. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. If you think that the word selah is complex to understand, well, there's another word in this uh, part of the psalm that is way more complex, more complex than I'm sure that you ever imagine. And it might be the word that you least expect. Bless. 
Uh, when we're at Theological College, um, they do give us some technical ways on how we can prepare uh, our, our messages and our sermons. And one of the, the ways uh, we're encouraged to explore Scripture is by doing a word study. And a word study is simply going back to the original word in the, its original language and then finding all the other uses of that word throughout Scripture. And that, what that does is give you an understanding of, of how that might fit in the context and the other meanings of that word. And what it can do is it can either expand your understanding of the passage or, or refine it and make it clearer. I remember uh, the instruction from the lecturer uh, before our first essay where we needed to do a word study. And his wise counsel was, in your passage, pick whatever word you like for a word study. But my advice is not to pick the word bless. And I found out why when I went back to the reference books. Because generally in most words, there'd maybe be a quarter to a half of a page on, on each of the words. But when I got to the Hebrew word for bless... There was pages upon pages upon pages of different usages and different meanings and different contexts around the word bless or blessing. I didn't use the word bless um, for that essay. Some of the meanings of bless, just to give you an understanding of the diversity and difference of the usage, were, again, what we commonly know as being blessed. So good things happening. It can also mean abundantly. It could mean altogether. Bless can mean blaspheme. Bless can mean congratulate. It can mean curse. It can mean greatly. It can mean to kneel. Bless could mean praise or salute. Bless can mean still. And on the National Day of Thanksgiving, blesh can mean thanks. I could go on for pages and pages and pages, but I hope you can get an understanding for the difference of the meaning of just one simple English word. It can refer to God's action to us. It can refer to our action to God. But it also can refer to our action towards each other. And I think when you think about the way God can bless, as verse 1 in the psalm declares, and when you think about how dramatically diverse and how sometimes it, can't, it may not be clear and obvious as we might think, then to say that God blesses us should give us pause for Selah. And perhaps we might ask, what experiences of our life have we actually missed as a blessing? or we may not have named as a blessing. 
or acknowledged as a blessing that have actually been a blessing. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known upon earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. And as you reflect on that grand image of God, one of the questions that we can ask in our Selah moment is, how big is our God? God will not be restricted to people who are just like us. Anything less than the entire world is not worthy of the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. As far back as the Psalms, God was refusing to be a private possession for one group of people. And God cannot be contained to one group of people now, even Anglicans. God is for all nations. God was back then, even when Israel thought that they were the chosen ones. God kept saying, God is for all. And God is still for all. How big is our God? After our two Selah moments, the psalm concludes, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, has blessed us. May God continue to bless us. Let all the ends of the earth revere him. I hope we can say these words with extra depth and extra meaning because of the Selah. God's word is rich and God's word is deep. It's comforting. It's confronting. It's inspiring and it's convicting. Within these words, we find the truth about ourselves, the promises of God, and we find hope. If we're always rushing through them with no Selah, how then do we genuinely, authentically, and really Seek first. Loving God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Thank you that in and through your word, you are constantly moving in and through our lives and challenging us and changing us. I pray that as we reflect on your word at work, we might say love.